Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Gamers Tavern. Today, Jesse Scoble joins Ross Watson and myself to discuss technology and gaming, and let me tell you, the gods of the digital did not want you to hear us discussing their secrets. Uh, ironically, our technology episode had more technological issues than any other episode we've recorded so far combined. Software, hardware, sound equipment all tried to keep this message from getting out, but not even the gods themselves can stop the signal. Uh, uh, okay, maybe I tempted them a little bit too far for that one. But uh, uh, anyway, please forgive the minor audio issues as we bring you Episode 6, Technology and Gaming, or Instant Game Publisher, just add Kickstarter. So grab a drink from the bar and join us at the table in the corner after this word from our sponsor. Hey, have you heard of The Strange? Hi, I'm Bruce Cordell. The Strange is a role-playing game that supposes that just outside of what we think of as normal Earth, there's an alien data network called The Strange. We're running a Kickstarter right now to fund The Strange. To find it, go to Google and type in The Strange Kickstarter and follow the link provided. The Strange is host to a number of hidden worlds called Recursions, that player characters travel to and explore. One is a place called Arden, where magic powered by souls and other fabulous sorceries actually work. Bruce and I have designed The Strange to use the same rules engine as Numenera, a rules engine we call the Cypher System. If you know and like Numenera, you'll like The Strange. This message was brought to you by Monty Cook Games. If you want to know more about The Strange, go to kickstarter.com and search for us there. Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Gamers Tavern podcast. I'm Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott Jr. And tonight we have with us Jesse Scoble. Jesse, could you tell us a little bit about your gaming character sheet? Sure. I am currently senior content designer on Wizard 101 for King's Isle and Austin. And that basically means writer. So I do most of the quests and stories for our new updates for Wizard 101. Before that, worked in Toronto at uh, GANS for Webkins for a couple of years. And before that, uh, I was NC, NCSoft on, on City of Heroes and the web team. But before all this com- you know, computer game stuff, uh, I worked in the pen and paper game field for about five years as a writer, designer, and editor for Guardians of Order primarily, uh, and then for com- freelance work for companies like White Wolf, um, Green Ronin, guys like that. Awesome. We actually had uh, Ari Marmel on the last show talking about, well, not the last show, on a previous show, talking about uh, White Wolf and what it was no, like. It was, uh, it was the last show. It was? Okay. Yes. I, I lose track of where we are with all these shows. We're, we're doing quite a few. Yeah. Uh, but we talked considerably about, you know, White Wolf as, like, a company. I, I think you would have found that very interesting. So, you know, you worked on um, Silver, Silver Age Sentinels, is that right? I did. I did, indeed. Those were, were back in the days when we had heard lots of people were using Big Eye Small Mouth to play superhero games, so we, we thought that would be a good thing to dive into. Champions had, had sort of fallen by the wayside, and there was nothing else on the horizon, and by the time we came out, Champions had come back, and Mutants and Masterminds had come out. <laughs> yeah. So the field became very crowded, but all good guys and you know the other companies and, and great products. You actually um, did a crossover with Champions, didn't you? We did, yeah. It was a lot of fun. Reality Storm. Very good, yeah. And we had a fun marketing campaign where we took shots of their characters and vice versa. <laughs> I'm a, um, an unabashed Champions fanboy. I just love everything Champions uh, for the most part. Um, I'm doing a, a big review of the different systems on my blog, actually. Reality Storm is something I'm going to be talking about fairly shortly when I get into 5th uh, Edition Champions. So... Yeah, you were the, the line developer for a lot of stuff over Guardians of War. I was. When we first started working on Silver Sentinels, uh, Lucien Soldon, who's a great friend and a mentor, um, was working with us. And then he got called back by, by the Siren Song of Montreal, so he, he left us. And I went from being pretty much the fiction world guy on Silver Age to being the creative director of it. And then I, I took over, the, the, you know, saw the project completion and, and the very supplements we did. And I've got to ask, is there, is there connections uh, between that and your work on uh, City of Heroes, City of Villains? Indirectly. When Guardians basically was, was ending, shall we say, um, nicely, yeah. 
I was at a trade show in Las Vegas where we were promoting Game of Thrones. This is before all the really bad times, but we were trying to, you know, it was still it, the, the end, but the good time part of it. So you were at Gamma Trade Show in Las, uh, Las Vegas? I was at the Gamma Trade Show, and we ran into Sean Fish from Cryptic Studios. And I had met Sean at a previous Gen Con or something. Sean was the lead writer of City of Heroes. And, you know, he was asking what I was doing. I said, oh, well, you know, I was, was kind of looking for a job, really, was what I was doing. I mean, I was there promoting Game of Thrones and, and Guardians, but the company, was, you know, the writing was, was clear on the wall at that point. And he said, hey, you know superhero games, because he knew my work on Silver Age, and I had also been the developer for the Authority role-playing game, where we right. that comic from DC, Wildstorm, and, and turned it into a game. And he said, hey, well, we need a writer for web fiction for City of Heroes. And he said, it's, you know, writing web fiction, it's not game design, and it's uh, Austin, not California, but if I wanted to, I should throw my resume in the in the ring. So that led to the, the gig at, at NCSoft, uh, which was pretty cool. I mean, I, it was great fun to work with the City of Heroes guys. Did you work with Jim Butcher over there when he was writing with them? Um, I, I know him, um, but I didn't really work with him, no. Well, that's awesome. Well, the the thing about what you're talking about, you know, getting into technology and kind of merging that with gaming is, is kind of an awkward segue into tonight's theme. The The show content we're going to talk about tonight is revolving around technology and the gaming table. I think we should probably start off by talking about, like, when we're talking about technology at the gaming table, I think primarily what we're talking about is the use of things like your phone or your iPad, you know, tablets at the gaming table and, and how that impacts the gaming table. And I guess, you know, the first question we should talk about is, do you think that's a good thing for people to have those kind of things out and active during a game? It really depends on on the group, of course. You know, I've been gaming in various sorts for for many many years. Not nowhere near as active as I'd like to be these days. But you know, I think that when a group is engaged and focused, then tablets and and laptops and so forth can be a great aid, a great tool. You know, we talk about all the things they can do. And when the group is is <laughs> so distracted, with, whether that's we because two weeks ago. the group my is too big table. or the GM yeah, is focusing too much phone, on like, you know one player or, or a couple of players, on the table, or on people silent, aren't engaged with case, it, you know, you know whatever reason is coming up, then whatever, some sort I mean, of happens, but are they more distracting the than back in the day when I would you know have a pile of comics next to me? Okay, just let me quick on Facebook, but I would look at more positives and try to finish writing this tweet for everybody whether it's one. <laughs> it's just so easy just to completely derail the pacing of a game if everyone's doing that. Uh, and it's especially bad in my games because I'm a smoker. I'm going outside every hour or two for a cigarette. Do your online shit then. I guess I'm like the substitute teacher at the high school because I kind of allow everything. <laughs> if, if if people have phones and iPad and, and, and pads and stuff, I'm like, I don't really... I guess it doesn't, it doesn't bother me, but... Um, I, I guess I kind of, in this case, I, I definitely agree with um, where Jesse's coming from, that it's it's about engagement, and you try to you try to reach out and get them engaged, and if they're engaged, they're not going to be looking at their, in my opinion, they're not going to be looking at their phone and their uh, iPad, but if they're not engaged, then it doesn't matter what they have, they'll find something else to focus on. And that might change depending on game systems, too, but if you get something that's really, really combat-heavy, like Pathfinder or 4th Edition D&D or Shadowrun, where they're in the middle of a fight, and it's going to be, you're going to be focusing, you, you do your turn in a minute or two, or five, or ten, and then it goes on to the next person, and the next person, and the next person. It may be ten or fifteen minutes before it gets back around to you. So that temptation, again, to just pick it up, let me check this real quick while it's not my turn, instead of focusing what's going on the table, and then it's like, oh, it's your turn. Okay, put phone down immediately, and acting like that's okay, but then you spend a lot of time staring through it. Okay, what just happened? Why is he over there now? Okay, but if, if you're, it's going to be 15 minutes before my next turn, I mean, what am I allowed to do at your table? Can I go get a drink? Can I write in my notebook? Can I go for that smoke break? Or do I am I sitting there? I mean, not that I, I don't enjoy listening to my fellow gamers play, 
But if it's just mechanic rule crunching, or, or hell, if it's a scene I'm not in, I mean, there are some people who have no problem with aspects of information, right? How, whether everyone is informed, uh, where all the players are, whether their, their characters may or may not know things. But there are obviously some games where people prefer to, to have a more of a, what, segregation of, of information. So in a case like that, how do you handle it? Uh, never really had a situation. Like I said, it also may be a complete problem with my group that I've played with most recently. They were a very distractible bunch. Many times combat ran long because they were busy talking about the new Sci-Fi Channel original movie in the middle <laughs> of combat. Well, we, we have talked about a couple of ways to kind of address this in the past, at least uh, as far as like, you know, maybe setting aside the first 30 minutes for, for uh, you know, pop culture discussions and whatnot. But, you know, let, this is a good question to ask Jesse. Let, you know, let's just say, you know, in the world of hypotheticals, let's say, you know, you're running a game for Daryl's group and you know that this is kind of an issue. What would you do to address, to address that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think if, if it's a group that where it becomes a problem, I don't know, if it's a one-off thing at a convention or something, and yes, you can see it being distracting, then I think it's reasonable to ask for a, a you know, a rule to have people keep the, the, sort of the Alamo rule, if you will, keeping the, the cell phones <laughs> dark in your pocket. <laughs> or I will destroy you! I mean, it... it uh, for, for our listeners who don't know what the Alamo Draft House is, and I feel so much pity for you if you don't, because the Draft House is awesome. Best place uh, to watch a movie ever. But if you remember that viral video that went around a while back about uh, the woman who got kicked out, uh, the, well, the woman, the probably teenage girl who got kicked out for texting the theater, this is the magnited states of America, I'm free to text in your crappy little theater, that, that video... That theater is the Alamo Draft House, and uh, Tim League, who runs the theater, is very, very passionate about not allowing phones in the theater, period, whatsoever, at all. Well, and, they, well, they allow the phones; they just don't allow you to use them. Yeah, during the film. <laughs> I don't want you to think it's some kind of fascist. They're not going to ch- you know, check them at the door. Stormtroopers, you know, pulling your phones out of your pockets at the door or anything. And that, and I'm also, I also know Tim, so that maybe he may have influenced my, sure, my sort of heavy-handedness on this issue as well. Right. So, so Jesse, you would basically just talk to people and see, you know, sort of implement the uh, the Alamo rule, if you would? Yeah, I mean, I also think that, that, you know, given my personal preferences, I would try to find a game system where there wasn't a huge lag between people's turns. I mean, to, to me, that that's, you know, sort of a narrative killer. Something like Big Eye, Small Mouth, for example. Sure, or, I mean, hell, I, I you know, grew up on, on Amber, basically. Um, well, maybe not grown up, but, but Fast systems, things that have quick resolutions and so forth. Um, yeah. You know, where we're getting forward, where people are able to make decisions and, and, and engage and, and do stuff. But Now, just as a quick aside, uh, for people who are into Amber, you uh, work with uh, Jason Dural. Never met the man. <laughs> and he is uh, one of the main writers on uh, basic roleplay and a lot of uh, more recent Amber Diceless uh, stuff. Yes, is is he the guy who just kickstarted the sort of spiritual successor to Amber, or is that someone else? Jason didn't kickstart it. He's involved, I think. But. He is. He he is. I think the the main writer on Lords of Gossamer and Shadow. That that's the one. Yeah. Um, no, Jason's a great guy. We we uh, he he was the uh, writer on Wizard and uh, still wears that that crown, um, and has helped me do a lot of of, of uh, get into everything down here. I'm lucky to have him in my. Uh, nerd writers group that we uh, occasionally get together and talk about writing. Cool. So. I was going to say that I think that um, it becomes more problematic if you're doing some kind of, of game where everyone has a tablet, where everyone has a laptop, uh, for whatever reason, where it's just a, a, you know an alt-tab away to check Facebook. That, I think, would be a bit more problematic and harder to regulate. I mean, it's sort of like if I'm playing in an MMO, you know, and, and raiding with my guild or group or whatever you want to call them, and I've got three other browser windows open. I mean, you know, that that becomes a bit more potentially distracting, harder to regulate, harder to kind of stay engaged with, and that takes, I think, a bit more self-policing. Right. Well, uh, I, now i got a question, actually, I want to direct um, to both of you, but first, actually, to Daryl, to give him a chance. What do you think you could do to take your phone or your tablet and actually use it to enhance the game experience. I have racked my brain trying to figure it out. And aside from uh, something we're going to get into here in a moment, I believe, which is that there's all these little neat little apps and other things that have been coming out a lot recently. 
I can't really think the biggest one I can think of would probably be it would if you're playing one of those really big intrigue games where there's a lot of players working against players behind the scenes and they have to instead of passing little crib notes all the time because I remember when we used to run World of Darkness or Paranoia or even some of our uh, D&D games it would be I would get little wads of paper thrown at me every couple seconds and something like instant messaging or texting would be amazing for that and I think there was even a someone built like the ultimate gaming table and it had tablets built into it with an instant messaging system built in on the players side so all the players could send IMs to the GM and stuff like that well, if you were always getting hit with spitballs during your games, that would explain a lot about your style. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, that, that Ultimate Gaming Table sounds pretty pretty awesome. But um, Jesse, what about you? What, do you? what would you use your phone or your, your tablet to enhance the game experience? Um, I think, you know, I, I think that stuff is great. Um, as again, you know, we, we talk about Amber, which has a lot of player, you know, versus player conspiratorial stuff and White Wolf games and, and so forth can, can really feed into that. I think if you're doing it a more tra- traditional game, uh, if you could tie kind of your mapping software, if you will. I mean, I always thought, I, I got a huge kick out of the, the first time I bought a, a raceable um, hex board, right? And was able to yeah. draw the dungeon out and see the miniatures. Oh, oh I, I, have you seen Jolly Blackburn setup before? No, no, I haven't. Yeah, uh, that's He's got the, an amazing yeah, Hackmaster like, uh, thing. Where yeah, it's it's, like it's, it's got to be seen to be believed. Yeah, it's like a 24-inch or 32-inch flat-screen TV. He has a Lexan case over with a grid etched into it so he can mark on it. But that's hooked up to his either his laptop or his tablet, and he feeds in maps on the TV screen. So you're actually playing on the TV screen, and he can change the maps and change effects and things like that, swap them out. It's really awesome. You know, conversely, if you had a group where you know, kind of a um, special forces recon, you know, ghost recon kind of game where groups are split up and you could show them different images based on what part of the, you know, compound they were infiltrating, the, the you know, base they were, they were sneaking into. That could be great, too, as a way to have a group where the, the, the players have split up, which we always, we often hate, but where they're able to actually stay in communication via headset, uber technology, magic, tarot cards, whatever. That could be a really cool way to, to do that type of thing, too. Well, I've got a few things I want to say on this subject because I've, you know, used my tablet quite a bit and I've seen other people use their phones and tablets. You know, for me, I think the way that you can use to enhance the game experience is actually through both visuals and sound, primarily. I have a good friend of mine uh, who runs, you know, games at conventions, and one way he gets your attention at the convention, um, because it is a social situation where you don't necessarily know all the people at the table and it can be kind of hard to make that connection with them, you know, to really draw them in and immerse them in the setting. So what he does, he has a lot of sort of visual shortcuts on his um, laptop. Like, for example, one of the games is uh, sort of a silly superhero game. And the, uh, the the chief, if you will, of the bureau that hires the superheroes is actually a monkey wearing a suit. And what he'll do is he'll pop up his, his iPad and bring up the image of the monkey wearing the suit and then talk, you know, in character as the monkey. And everyone's kind of staring at the screen and they're just kind of simultaneously getting that immersion of, you know, okay, I can see, I, I see the monkey, so therefore I don't have to imagine it, right? With, with sound, well, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do another one with, with sight first. Uh, I was running uh, Shadowrun, and there's a lot of really great places you can go to find cool cyberpunk city shots of, like, you know, high-tech city streets and things like that. So it was very easy for me to kind of show the characters the different areas of Seattle they were in just by saying, okay, well, now you're here. And I would flip up the screen and show, like, you know, the really crowded, dingy streets of uh, the Barrens. Or then I could flip it around and they could go to Bellevue, which is actually or, uh, or a different part of Seattle. I forget the name. Um, that's really high tech and, and upscale. And you could show a picture of that. And it, it helped, you know, kind of put them right into where they were supposed to be. And sound-wise... A good friend of mine runs a Asian superheroes game at conventions. What he and he plays a, a, a theme song that's very good for that. And I've ran, uh, for example, a Venture Brothers hero game, and I play the theme song for the Venture Brothers at the beginning of the game, and everybody's like, "Yeah, yeah, okay, we're into this." If they know the show, you know what I'm saying is as a as a shortcut. Like I think there's ways to use those those phones and tablets specifically to enhance the senses of sight and sound to kind of bring people back into the game. No, totally. And I mean, you know, back in, I don't know, let's say the 90s, when I was doing a lot of gaming uh, with various with various high school groups and university groups, we'd do print-offs of cool pictures, and we'd do, you know, CDs or, or <coughs> mixtapes. 
<laughs> and that's old school, right? I mean, all that stuff was great, but but very hard to put together and rudimentary and and, and so forth. Having it accessed on a tablet, you know, uh, at at, the, at a swipe at a touch of a you know finger is so much more convenient, and, and you can queue up so much, so many, you know, you can hold so much more information, have things, you know, on queue. It's awesome. There's a Kickstarter going on right now that's just for sound effects for fantasy role playing games, like the clash of sword against uh, sword against shield sort of stuff, or the sound of a spell. It's like a soundboard you can put on your tablet and have yeah, those I kind of enhance have a, the game. I used to have a stack of CDs that were all of that stuff. So yeah, that, that would be really cool to have, like just as a a pack of MP3s on my laptop or my tablet to play during the game. But yeah, okay. So I guess you know here's here's another question for Daryl, um, and I will also throw it to you, Jesse, after Daryl gets a chance. But helper apps for different games, things like Hero Lab and the D and D character character builder, are these things that you use, and in, and if so, how do you use them? Cannot live without them. I I unless it's a system that's really, really rules light where you can whip up a character in like 5, 10, 15 minutes, like we're doing a fade or something like that, yeah, I'll still use pencil and paper. But anything else, anything more complicated than creating a character in like World of Darkness, which is still a pretty simple and straightforward character generation program, I am still going for, even if it's just some fan-made Excel spreadsheet someone made, I I can't do it. I've got, and I, don't get me wrong, I've got no problem making characters the old-fashioned way. I've got in my box full of notes from that I've written for novels and film ideas and all that from all the way back in high school that I don't want to throw out because I'm paranoid something's good in there, even though every time I look at it, I cringe. Uh, in there is probably three or four hundred notebook character sheets for Shadowrun 2nd and 3rd edition characters I've made over the years. So I've got no problem doing the analog thing, but Hero Lab or... NS, uh, there's an old one for third edition. It was called uh, NSRCG. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can't remember what it is, but the Shadowrun character. It was one of the best character generators I ever had. It was freeware. Someone did it as a fan project. It was awesome. Yeah, uh, I, I have a copy I, of it. Yeah, I haven't used Hero Labs yet, so I can't really comment on how good theirs is. I've just used the one for Pathfinder for them, and even their Pathfinder one's really good. But I can make a I can make a Shadowrun character in third edition using that program, or using uh, one of the fourth edition character generators. Make a fourth edition character, half an hour, an hour tops. If I'm making like a really complicated decker with a custom built cyber deck that I'm building from scratch. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I I totally have the same thing. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna actually ask uh, Jesse. What do you think about that? I think they're you know potentially great. I mean, I don't play enough things that are that are so complicated these days to need them, which is really just a Sad statement <laughs> how much gaming I'm able to get done. But I think, you know, one of the things that, that it kind of opens up is the idea of, and, you know, I'm a little weary to suggest this, but you can have games and game systems that are more complicated when you have the apps that can handle the mechanics behind it, right? I mean, that's one of the things I think that made MMOs and, and other computer games so popular is being able to, to simplify and streamline and, and speed up the combat, but also make it kind of more in. Um, more complicated, ha- have more kind of moving parts under the hood, right? More depth. More depth, yeah. You know, if you can track more than, you know, simple hit points and, and mana points or, or whatever, you can have all sorts of modifiers factoring into things that are kind of neat and cool, but when you're actually trying to calculate them on paper and figure out what they are on the fly in the middle of the game session are, are, are mostly terrible. Well, we can only hope that someday they'll invent, like, an AI that will kind of, you know, be a helper and just keep track of all the the modifiers for you because you know then we could have some really really crazy complex we could probably play traveler and not have to you know calculate let's not go crazy (laughs) (laughs) no no for real i love traveler i just i'm 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 poking fun at it because i love it but um even watson couldn't handle that i think yeah (laughs) but yeah here's a question look at fourth edition dungeons and dragons would it be possible to really play that game making a character pen and paper with all the books spread out all the supplements all the powers and all the little stuff interacting would even be possible to do a character by hand for that game well possible yes but not fun or well you know i'm 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 stretching the point because it would be fun making a character is fun in it's just basic function but um it would be a little tedious i think is what i what i would say if you had to go through all of those books at the same time 
you know, six people around the table, do it up quickly. No, it would just be, you know, that would be your weekend, right? Well, that's where I wanted to say something quick about Hero Labs. I think Hero Labs is a really great product. You know, Daryl pointed out that there was um, NSRCG for 3rd edition Shadowrun. Hero Labs has a great, great program for 4th edition Shadowrun, and I played a ton of that over the last couple of years. Now, that is a that is a character generation system that is extremely deep. There are so many options from your race to your skills to the cyberware or magic or maybe both. It's a beast before you even start pulling from all the splat books. Right, and, and I love... The thing is, I really love games that have a lot of depth. That's why I love Champions, for example, which is... You know, extremely math heavy, but he's also extremely deep in terms of the types of choices you get to make about character generation. And I think, like Daryl, I would have to say, I don't think I would have had nearly as much enjoyment in making characters and learning how to build a character that I want to play without the help of something like Hero Lab. That that also goes. Let's. I mean, let's let's kind of move beyond character generation though for for apps and things like that. What about? Things like the character sheets that you can throw on your digital character sheets that are sort of kept in the cloud. What about things like dice rollers or combat trackers? Dice rollers are the devil's, you know, spawn, I think. You need a, you need a bag of dice. Okay, okay. I, I, want you, I want you to hear something right now. See if you can hear this. Could you hear that? This noise? Ladies and gentlemen, Daryl is also the sound engineer for Gamers Tavern. Yes. <laughs> okay, my microphone picked it up. I don't know if Skype picked it up. <laughs> I heard it. But I heard it. That, that was the sound of a dice rolling. That was fun. I want to do it again, except the dice rolled under the bed. But yeah, it, it was fun. Here, let me do this on my dice rolling app. Oh, I punched the phone and a number came up. Woo-hoo. But it did not go under the bed. I will say this. I think, I think the idea of a dice roller is great because there are times when people forget their dice. That's why I own two pounds of dice from Chessex and bring them with me everywhere well, I game. Well, you know, that's that's wonderful. But I'm saying there's going to be times where people are going to forget things. And it's just one less thing you you have to do without, you know, if you happen to have something on your phone. It's like, for me anyway, it's like a backup. It's like, oh, crap, I forgot my dice. Well, at least I have my dice roller. Now, like, I think I'm, I think I'm like Jesse in that you'll take my dice from my cold, dead hand. You know, I, I love rolling dice. But uh, I, th- I think it's nice that there's an option out there. I mean, the, the option's good, but it's just... It's, it's not fun. Well, well, I understand that you know Daryl. Daryl is on record as saying he is not in fa- not in favor of the dice rollers. I understand that. Now, you know, a lot of board games actually out there are these days are doing like tracking apps. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, Descent as a board game. Uh, a little bit, yeah. So you know, Descent is a pretty complex board game. It has a lot of depth. Right. Um, there's uh, Fantasy Flight did a really good thing uh, back for first edition Descent where they released an app that was a campaign tracker. Um, now, I actually, actually, I'm going to take it back. I'm not sure it was, if it was Fantasy Flight or if some uh, interested uh, fan did it, but some somebody did a, a campaign tracker that would allow you to sort of keep all of your information between games on the cloud and, and keep it, you know, help you organize uh, in between games to see how far you were going and where the overlord was. And, and I just thought that was brilliant. And I, I, think, I think that you can see more of that coming for uh, for board games and, and and things of that nature, probably it might even I, I believe that um the guys that make Hero Labs, uh, which is Wolf Lair, they have uh, come out with a thing called Realmworks, which yeah, is that's, that's uh, the thing they're doing for no no that's something else the Army Tracker for miniature war games they have that's Army Builder that's Army different. Builder yeah but we, we, I'll talk about Army Builder in a second but Realmworks is the new thing from them that is actually kind of like the Descent campaign tracker, but it's for role-playing games. And I haven't used it yet, but I understand it's actually really good. Well, I definitely think we should check it out. Uh, if, if any of our listeners out there have played Realmworks, you know, definitely uh, drop us a line or make a comment on our webpage, because I'm curious to know what you guys think of it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really curious about it myself, because there are... Because you were talking about digital character sheets and the combat trackers, right. and there's a lot of them out there, but I, I've tried a couple of them, and they're okay, I guess, but I, and it may just be because I'm, I've been doing this for so long, the old school way, it's, it's actually slows me down to try to use the user interface. And I think what it really, what that industry really needs is one kind of breakout product that's just smash, knocks it out of the park. Well, I'll tell you one thing I think that does really well, that is almost that, that it comes close, maybe. And for me, that's actually Obsidian Portal. Have, have you guys ever used Obsidian Portal? 
Uh, I have not, but I've heard a lot of good things about it. Yeah, I play. I played with it for my campaign, but I didn't get in depth enough to it. It, it looked like it was really, really cool, but there was a little bit of a learning curve on it. But this is before the update that they kickstarted. So, for anybody who doesn't know what it is, Obsidian Portal is a website you can go to, and basically, it is a fantastic place for you to put all the information about your campaign and have it available online. And here's another good reason why someone might want to have their phone or tablet at the game, because they can actually look up on a little wiki that you can build on Obsidian Portal. And maybe they missed a session, or maybe they just forgot who Galgax the Wizard is. And they're like, oh, Galgax, is he the guy from Retamaron? Well, let me check. And, you know, they'll just go on the on the wiki and kind of look that up and go, oh, yeah, he was the guy who betrayed us at the last... So no uh, more Bob the Necromancer? Well, you know, maybe it, it maybe it will help GMs who have uh, memory issues. I know I personally well, no, am it's not, not it's the best. Not me, it's in my place. I, I will go in and I will spend an hour doing entomology research on name origins and pick just the perfect name that has the perfect meaning for this important NPC, and then I put them down on the table. It's like, okay, that's Bob, that's Jim. <laughs> Well, Obsidian Portal is not just a storage site. I mean, it's not just a, it's not just a wiki, but it's also where you can uh, put your character sheets, your pictures. It's like part wiki, part blog, part yeah, like, like image storage thing. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm gonna go I'm gonna go one more step further. Um, so, are you guys familiar with the term blue booking? Uh, yes. It's been a while since I've heard it, though. So, blue booking is a term that casually sprung out of a 1980s game supplement called Strike Force for Champions. It was written by Aaron Alston, who was actually here in Austin just last weekend. And it is one of the greatest books, in my opinion, for talking about how GMs should run a campaign. It's just a really brilliant book for that. And one of the things that the Strike Force talked about was the idea of blue booking. And Aaron Alston defines blue booking as a way for players to keep playing their characters sort of away from the gaming table. They're sort of telling stories about what their characters are doing in between games. Now, originally, originally this was done in little blue notebooks. They would just write in them, and that's where the term blue booking comes from. I'd never heard the term before, but I actually did something similar to this before Obsidian Portal. Like about three or four years ago, I set, uh, no, it was about four or five years ago, I set up a wiki for my campaign world. And, and I set it so the players could go in and edit, so they could go in if they had a home... I had like this broad overview of the campaign, but any little details, like I'm from this town and this little nation over here, they could sit there and fill in the wiki for it, or they could fill in their their characters, and I would have a campaign recap that I would actually have them maintain, so they could tell their memories, and I would just go in and fix where they misremembered something, or if they forgot something important. With Amber, also, I mean, it really introduced me to the idea of player contributions, which I'm sure came out of, of Blue Booking originally, you know, conceptually where people would get sort of extra points for their character builds by volunteering to do stuff, whether it's keeping a character diary or keeping a, a game log, like you're talking about, um, Daryl, where they would... So one player generally would maintain a, a history of what was going on, which is great because they could then influence it, you know, to being the person writing the history, <laughs> slanted as they wanted. And uh, for my game, Shadows Angeles, which was a game I ran for about a year and a half, we did 26 episodes which, uh, well, 26, I like, we call them episodes because it was very cinematic, but 26 sessions, okay? And my players were really having a good time playing their characters, and they wanted to keep playing their characters after the game was over, so they would start writing little stories about what their characters were doing in between games. They were blue-booking, but they were doing it on, uh, like, a Google, uh, Google Groups, or Yahoo Groups, or what was at the time. And uh, when, the, when it was all said and done, that 26-session campaign, they had written over 90 stories, so that's like three stories per session. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that pr prior to having uh, technology that we could sort of access and read, you know, e maybe not at the table, maybe, you know, in between games. But that, that's something that technology allows us to do a little more, a little better, is to help tell stories with our characters, even when we're not just at the table. I, I guess, you know, the next thing we should probably talk about is, you know, technology-wise... Now most books that people read, you know, or, or, or use reference for their rules, most of these books are being carried around on tablets or being carried around on phones as uh, PDFs. And how do you, how do you feel about that, Daryl? Uh, me, I have a love-hate relationship with it. Now, when it comes to sitting at a table running a game, I want the dead tree format book. I want actual paper and ink that I can thumb through in it. This is probably, again, just because this is how I've done it since I've ever started gaming, I can find a rule faster in a rule book thumbing through it 
than I can using a search program or keywords or bookmarks or anything like that. I can just thumb through because I, I know what order the pages are in because I've read through the book so many times. I can thumb through it and find it faster. I can't do it as fast on a PDF. But, one, conventions. It is so much better to bring your tablet or your e-reader or your phone or your laptop and run your game off that than try to carry a backpack full of every single game book you're going to need for whatever game you're running. And that even goes for home games, too. If you're not playing in your own house and you're having to lug a backpack full of 100 pounds worth of books, that's insane. The other thing is, I love PDFs for, like, splat books and source books and fluff books because... I can read those anytime I want on my phone or wherever. I don't I don't need the physical copy for that because I'm not flipping through it and referencing it all the time like I am the rule books. What about you, Jesse? Oh, I think at the table, I mean, tablets, electronic, you know, format is great. I think it, it's terrific to have it um, commune. I, really, when, I, when I'm at home having the books on my shelf, that's when I want to see, you know, physical hard copies of stuff. You know, I, I think everything that Daryl said about taking it, you know, to conventions and so forth is, is totally true, of course. I mean, I know some people who, you know, for space reasons, as we've gotten older and have to share space with children and wives and husbands and, you know, whatnot, move more towards having an electronic library. I mean, I still have real trouble divesting myself of having the physical copies. But, you know, there's a point where the bookshelves start to collapse a little bit under their weight, so. Yeah, I know what you mean. I've got overflowing bookshelves at home. And some of them are overflowing with signed books. I mean, that's one reason why I love my, my Dead Tree products is because they're signed by authors and creators. I happen to have, for example, uh, Game of Thrones uh, RPG signed by Jesse Scoble. It's a, a rare thing these days. <laughs> can't, exact, so, can't exactly sign a Kindle. Uh, well, that's true. Now, more and more games actually are, are sort of coming into that uh, digital age. Uh, you've seen things like... Um, the Elder Sign, which was a board game by Fantasy Flight Games and is now an app you can download. And yeah, almost all of them have an app version now. Settlers of Catan, Ticket to right. Ride, uh, Dominion, uh, Lords of Waterdeep just came out with an app version of their game. Really? Oh, wow, I've got to get that. Yeah, that just got announced at uh, Gen Con, actually. Wow, all right. Well, hey, I'm behind the times. I, I was actually going to say, Ross, one of the things that I, I think when you buy a physical copy of a book, gaming or otherwise, I think you should be allowed to have the digital version for free, personally. Oh, that's a that's an excellent business plan. I, I, I agree with that. You know, are people worried about piracy? Well, I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not particularly worried about it. And I, I think that that's a great way to, to promote things. And, and to, you know, you want people to have your game and, and to be able to access it whenever they're thinking about it. I think having it, facilitating that is a good thing. Rather than trying to make people buy an additional copy as a digital copy, um, which I think is, is not so great. There's a lot of publishers these days that are actually doing that, where if you buy the print copy, you also get a PDF. I think Savage Worlds is, is doing a lot of that. I was going to say, you guys are actually in the industry, so you, prob you probably have heard this argument before, I'm sure, but I've talked to a lot of people about this thing over the years, debating on message boards, because I'm completely in your camp. I think you should get the digital product free. However... The counter-argument to that is it may seem like it is a free thing where you've already got it in InDesign because you had to lay it out digitally anyway to send it to the printer. Why can't you just export it to a PDF? Well, because then you have to go through and you have to make sure the layout functioned correctly in a PDF to make sure nothing got screwed up. You have to go through and add the bookmarks. You have to go through and double-check, make sure the art didn't bleed over, uh, make sure that uh, any, sort, uh, any sort of context searching is correct. So there is extra work that has to be done on a digital PDF, and especially with the board game apps, that's a completely different beast because that's a game that's getting programmed from the ground up. That's like, a, that's like your Angry Birds, your Candy Crush or whatever. It's the same thing only it's based off this other board game that exists. Well, you know, what you just so, said about all the different things you have to do to get the PDF right, um, that's actually a, a service that's offered by DriveThruRPG. And, for example, when I was working at Fantasy Flight Games, we would basically just do what you said. We would take the, the uh, InDesign files for the published book and send that to DriveThru, and then DriveThru would go through and add all the bookmarks and, you know, they they would double check and make sure that it would be available and ready for people to buy as an, a PDF and then, you know, use in that format. 
But even if you're doing the work yourself, you know, as a small indie publisher or, or whatever publishing house, you know, presumably you're going to be selling some copies that are purely digital, and that money should be able to go in and fund, you know, the, the work to make those copies in the first place. Or you, you know, slightly increase the price of your game or, or whatever. You factor that price in. I mean, I, I think that the goodwill and, and getting it out into more hands, can, you know, counters the, the uh, minimal loss um, in revenues. The threat of piracy. Um, yeah, as one, yes. Yeah, if they're going to pirate a game, it's going to get pirated. It doesn't matter what you do. All any sort of DRM or access blocking or protection you do, all it does is inconvenience your paying customers. The pirates don't care. They're going to get around it. Wizards of the Coast did not release anything digital for their core books. Anything they printed, it was print only. You had to go to a store or go on Amazon and buy a paper and ink copy of that book. They were online within two weeks of every single release date. Well, let me ask you guys a question. Are you familiar with Eclipse Phase? Yes. So Adam Jury did something I, I consider very smart. He actually released Eclipse Phase for free. Creative Commons. Yeah, it was his Creative Commons license. You could just go download the whole book whenever you wanted to for free. And he said, you know, I'm going to show you guys exactly what piracy means to a you know a small scale publisher like the name of his company is I kind of forgot what it was Posthuman Studios Posthuman thank you yes he's, he's for, so a small publisher like Posthuman he's going to show what what that means and he actually did a really great blog post about this um, we should actually add the link into the the, the show notes but he did a blog post where he kind of bro- broke down what the uh, what the results of that were a year later and surprisingly uh, the vast majority of people who downloaded the uh, free copy also bought the actual book. And which, it was a large percentage. I mean, it was not not small at all. Which that actually matches pretty much every single study that's been done that wasn't financed by the RIAA or MPAA when it comes to piracy in any media. Right. I mean, you know, I've had the pleasure to meet Cory Doctorow and, 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 you know, to read a number of his things. And, you know, if, for those who don't know, he's a, a writer, uh, primarily. Work, he does columns for boingboing.net, but he's an, uh, an author and novelist and has a... Does he wear a cape and goggles? Uh, I don't don't think so. Um, XKCD joke. Sorry. <laughs> um, but um, you know, when Corey first started putting out, he puts out almost all the stories under Creative Commons uh, access, you know, license and, and accessibility. When he first started doing it, people said, "Well, you can do it because nobody knows who you are, so no one cares." And now that he's a pretty big name, people say, "Well, the only reason you can do it is because you're Corey Doctorow, and so you're going to make your sales anyways." <laughs> <laughs> damned if you do, and damned if you don't. Right. You know, so you, you kind of take your your stance, and 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 I think you have to kind of live with it and, and ride out your experiment however you want to conduct it. But I agree with him. I agree with Adam Jury um, that putting your stuff out in front of as many people as possible, making it as easy to get to, is, is generally the better way. Especially when you have people like me. Sure, I'll download the PDF for free, but if I start running a campaign of it, I'm going to go buy that print copy because I don't want to thumb through the PDF. So, yeah, I, I agree with both you guys. I think, uh, you know, get, getting getting the word out there is, is really important. Um, another great example is uh, Pathfinder's uh, open beta. You know, they released the rules for their, their whole game, basically, and said, uh, here, here it is. Uh, you know, tell us what you think. They were using it as... as uh, a way to get playtest information, but it was also the rules of the game, and they're just out there. And that's starting to become the standard almost, isn't it? I don't know if, if we trace that back kind of biggest to the D20 kind of open open license, but I think that you're right. A lot of gaming companies um, are doing it, and, and it's good to see more of it out there. You know, what's interesting also is, you know, we've talked about how RPGs are using technology and, and, and stuff like that. And we talked a little bit about, like, board games. What I think is really cool is how uh, miniature games are starting to leverage the technology as well. And I mean, this goes, schemes. Well, this goes all the way up to Games Workshop, who has recently done a thing where they're doing digital releases of their codexes. Actually, they're pushed updates out to these. If you have, if you have the codex and they do a an update or a rules fix or an errata, it's actually pushed right out to you, which wow. is really cool. Yeah, it, that's exciting. Something out for free? That's that's shocking. <laughs> well, you have to buy the, the codex, right? Uh, but the I think the updates are free. And Drive-Thru RPG does the same thing with their PDFs. If there's a new printing with errata, yeah. they'll update your PDF. Well, there's But it's not just Games Workshop, though. There's also There was a, a game that's unfortunately dead now, but it was called the X-Illus that was using uh, technology. It was letting you track your miniature games 
Um, I think it was kind of like a proto Skylanders, if you're familiar with Skylanders, where you would you know, track the progress of your miniatures in miniature games, and they would level up and things like that. Now, I think sort of the adult Skylanders is the new thing from Harebrained Schemes, as Daryl was saying, um, Golem Arcana. Are you familiar with that? That is going to revolutionize things if it works the way they want it to work. I think I'm, I'm kind of got a more of a little more of a wait and see attitude on that. I think it's possible. I mean, Jordan Wiseman has definitely done some things uh, in gaming that have had huge, uh, you know, huge repercussions afterwards. And, and he is, he has really, you know, done a lot of great things, but he's also had a few things that didn't work out so well. So, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious. I'm going to wait and see. I'm really, really curious about it because it hits. I don't do a lot of miniature gaming because there are two big barriers for me. One there is a lot of bookkeeping in a good miniatures game because you've got a lot of depth of rules there. This is going to fix that because I point my little magic pen at it and voila, done. Number two, as I've said before, I cannot paint for shit. <laughs> well, These I'm miniatures gonna... are coming pre-painted and apparently they're really easy to repaint too, to touch up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly disagree with you a little bit, Daryl, on the idea that you have to have a lot of bookkeeping to have a good miniature game. I actually don't think that's true, but... To each their own. Games. I don't play miniature <laughs> games, so I'm an out, I'm the outsider looking in, and all I see when I go to tournaments is everyone with these awesome minis spread out over these big, huge tables in the game room, and they're all staring at these binders. Well, yeah, well, that's tournament. A, a tournament mentality, though, is a different mentality, and that's going to be true. Yeah, that's going to be true. That we have whether you have ten rules or ten thousand, they're going to be studying those things very, very sharply because it's highly competitive. Speaking of a tournament mentality, there is one game that I will only play online anymore. Magic the Gathering. Because all I have to do is go pay my 10 or 20 bucks to buy the game when it comes out every year, instead of taking out a second mortgage to be able to play in a Friday Night Magic game. Yeah. I, and nobody can tear up your cards either, which is always good. But it's, uh, it's also a bad thing. You miss that, I miss that tactile feel anytime I play any sort of board game online, because I like rolling the dice, I like shuffling the cards, I like moving the little pieces around, and you, you lose that in those. I should also mention um, MechWarrior Tactics, which is basically Battletech played online. And if you've ever played Battletech, which probably a lot of you have, yes, you, you know that exactly how it works, and it works just like it does in, in MechWarrior Tactics. It's actually really surprising how faithfully it is uh, an adaptation of that. So, I love you know, that game. I love it. Well, we should, we should definitely do an episode about Battletech, because I also am a big, huge fan of it. Um, maybe uh, Jesse, are you a, a BattleTech fan? I mean, it's been twenty something years since uh, I've, I've <laughs> even looked at a BattleTech. But I mean, we we had a lot of you know a lot of game nights with it. But it's it's been a little been a little too long, probably. Uh, I understand, but I'll, I'll I'll say now, and and I think we should definitely definitely come back to this Daryl in a future episode. But all I'll say for now is that there's a new version out called Alpha Strike, which is way smoother, way faster, way more fun. And not that Battletech wasn't fun, but it's just le- so much less bookkeeping and so quick and so fast-moving, and I just, I've just fallen in love with it. It's just fantastic. It is currently sitting behind Accursed in my review queue right now for Anacle News. And, so. you know, just on that topic, you know, let's talk about Accursed a little bit, because <laughs> what Accursed did, I think that was, uh, you know, interesting in terms of our topic here. Um, and, and I was inspired by Sean Patrick Fannin's uh, Shintar Kickstarter to do this. Um, we did a digital-only release. Uh, we, when we kickstarted uh, Accursed, uh, and for those who don't know what Accursed is, it's my Savage World setting, um, and we kickstarted it in October, and uh, we did really, really well. But the uh, the thing about it is that we decided not to have a physical fulfillment. We just did. We were going to release it as a PDF. Now you can get a physical copy of the book. You just have to uh, get it through drive-through as a POD, print-on-demand. Um, but what we, what we didn't want to do, you know, as as first-time Kickstarters, what we didn't want to do is have to worry about garages full of product or taking a, a, a dump truck down to the local uh, UPS and or sending forge- out. Or forgetting to put that note from your printer in China, do not stack more than three tall and having half of your inventory crushed, like the guy who ran that uh, the Kickstarter for the Rome, Roman combat board game, and he lost his house. Because he had to replace half his stock because he forgot to put one little instruction on the invoice. So yeah, physical fulfillment was something we didn't want to do. So we just did digital only, and it worked out. It's it's worked out so well so far, really really well for us. And I think once we get the you know the book done and out to our our backers, which is going to happen uh, in December, uh, as long as ninjas don't kidnap anyone, <laughs> uh, that is our plan. And you know I think 
I think it worked out really well for um, for Sean Patrick Fannin as well on Shintar. And I think it's it's almost kind of the wave of the future, especially for you know people who are you know more independent and don't have the the funds or the storage space for large print runs, um, is to do digital only. And I'm kind of curious, what do you guys feel? How do you feel about like a, a an RPG product that is something you literally cannot get as a book in a game store? It's only way. I mean, you can get a copy if you really really want one, but it's kind of a a little bit more of a, a, a process than just going down to Dragon's Lair and, and picking it up off the shelf. Um, I'm a little torn on it. I mean, I, I understand the reality of the industry these days and, and, you know, what print ones really are and how many, you know, copies people are selling. You know, so with um, Robin Law's uh, Hillfolk Kickstarter, Robin is a friend from the Toronto gaming scene and, and from the industry in general. And he did, you know, fabulously well with his, his Hillfolk uh, book, which should be coming out soon if, if people haven't gotten it yet. I was able to, to contribute to one of his uh, additional settings pitches, and at first I was, you know, really excited to be in the companion volume, I think it's called Blood on the Snow, but then he got so many awesome contributions that, you know, he had to basically squeeze some out, and so I, I've become one of the electronic updates, a, a pitch of the month um, contributor, which on one level is like, oh, great, I, I'm, I'm not in the hard copy, I don't get to put it on my shelf, that's, that's a little sad. Uh, at the same time, I was able to write two or three times the amount of content because there was no space limitations, and it gets out. You know, it'll have more of a spotlight because it'll be kind of the one thing people get that month. So that's kind of cool. So, you know, for my own per- sort of personal, you know, vanity side of things, um, being able to look at my shelf of stuff I've done, I definitely love physical copies of things. But to get more content out there, more cool ideas, I, I understand the reality and why we need to do, um, you know, electronic only sometimes. What about you, Daryl? I got a lot to say on this topic. Um, for, first off, it, digital-only releases, especially combined with Kickstarter, are a big double-edged sword because it's now instant gaming publisher. Just add water. <laughs> exactly. Just add, just add Kickstarter and voila. That's all you need. And if you've got experienced people from the industry doing this, like you guys when you did Accursed, you guys knew the industry you knew how it worked you knew the business side of things however there's a lot of these kickstarters that's just some kid who i've been playing games since i was 12 and i'm 17 now i know everything about gaming i'm going to start a company so they throw up a kickstarter and sure they get they get 500 bucks because their brother's girlfriend's sister's cousin happens to draw really good and had a really good art piece that he did and they threw it up on the kickstarter and made it look really nice and professional and they end up with a couple thousand bucks because the their goal was so low that they hit their goal and they got like two three thousand dollars for this pdf release and now this kid has to jump into entertainment law because maybe he doesn't know he goes on google image search and pulls all his art off that thinking it's on the internet it's free lawsuit this is an open gaming license thing. I can put anything I want from it in there. So, okay, Beholder and Mind Flayer and Lawsuit. And th- now this kid is pretty much in deep shit because he didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know he had to file taxes because he's just a guy who printed something. But he's made enough money that he legally has to file taxes. The IRS finds out. Audit. So it's a real double-edged sword for people who don't do the research before they jump into these things. That being said, I think it's cool that there is less of a gatekeeper for getting people to publish games because I'm kind of excited to see, you know, maybe maybe not every kid, you know, with a with a dream is going to succeed like, you know, some you pointed out a lot of the pitfalls that are, you know, going to happen. But just the fact that they are able to do it I think is great. I mean, because you didn't really have this back in the 80s or in the 90s or you know, even the early 2000s. You didn't really have this kind of ability to take an idea and make it real through crowdfunding. And I think, like I said, it's just it's exciting to to me to that, that people have that chance. And there are certainly a lot of Kickstarters, some that have failed and some that have succeeded but still failed because they didn't get their, their, their uh, fulfillment out. But there's been a lot of those that I think are really great ideas and I'm glad that people got a chance to at least you know, show them to, you know, kind of put that out there and, and promote, you know, the things that they were thinking about. Yeah. If the people actually approach it like a business and understand what they're doing, you can do some amazing things because like I said, no gatekeeper, I can make this really niche game for, I can make a role-playing game about being a chef in a kitchen that will only appeal to other foodie type people that (laughs) no one, no publisher would ever touch. 
and I, I just you know want to say for the record, you know, uh, I am available if anyone is doing a Kickstarter <laughs> and needs someone to write some things for them. Uh, you can absolutely reach me. So, do you want to work on my Kickstarter? I'll give you a credit. It'll be great for exposure. Uh, well, no, I, I don't work for free. That's but, uh, the that's the other side of the thing is you'll get a lot of that. No, but I'm just saying, you know, there's one thing we did with the Cursed Rise, we reached out to a lot of people that I know, um, for example, Jesse, and said, hey, would you like to, you know, write some stuff for us if we hit a stretch goal? And I got a lot of great people saying yes, including Jesse. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't hit the level that we needed to get Jesse on board, but, you know, the, the fact is that they were willing to work for it. And, you know, I think that's maybe something that if you are out there and you want to do a Kickstarter and, and create a digital product, and you want to get some people maybe, uh, you know, who are, who are interested in, in working on that kind of thing, you know, don't don't hesitate to reach out to, you know, maybe some of the guys that you think are, are really good writers for the particular project that you're, you're trying to fill. Yeah, I, I don't want to say I am being kind of Debbie Downer on this, but I really do. Th- I cover Kickstarters in my column for a reason. It is a really, really great tool for people who know how to use it properly. And that's the only thing I'm trying to basically I'm trying to warn people think it through, plan it out, know what you need to know before you jump into this. Daryl Mott, the Kickstarter lifeguard, is on duty, and he will tell you when you're drowning. Insert whistleblow here. <laughs> Jesse, what's your opinion about Kickstarters and digital product? You know, obviously you worked with uh, Robin Laws on, on Hillfolk, um, but, you know, if if someone's doing a Kickstarter for a digital product and they want to you know, get people to, to come in and come on board and help. Is that something, you know, that, you know, what, how do you feel about that? I think it's fine. I mean, I, I'm less concerned, I guess, um, about the pitfalls than Daryl is. I, I, there's a little bit of, I, I don't know. I, I guess I haven't heard enough cautionary tales. Is it going terribly, terribly wrong with someone being sued out of existence by someone whose image they used? I mean, with, with, so I, yes, there is a lot of that, um, sort of potential pitfalls, but, there's a lot of that in the internet just in general these days with, you know, everything from YouTube to whatever, um, torrenting a, a song. You know, I like to think that ones that are done poorly will tend to not succeed. Or if they happen to raise 500 bucks and they don't deliver, well, you know, it's probably not going to destroy anyone's life if, if they lose a couple of bucks on a project like that. Um, I, I do think it's interesting how it's given uh, creators who have a little bit of a name this avenue to a much wider audience. You know, if you had asked me, you know, 10 years ago, would someone like Monty Cook be able to raise $500,000 on his own, on his name? I I would have thought you were, you know, smoking crack. Um, (laughs) It's, you know, maybe a little analogous, I mean, kind of of a weird, but I was just just thinking about as we're talking about it, to the days when the, the top flight artists left Marvel and DC and formed Image Comics. Oh yeah, it's a really good, that's a really good analysis. And, I mean, it had lots of pitfalls there, too, right? Where suddenly these guys made way more money than they'd ever seen, and, you know, they could draw a comic or they could go on a, a yacht, you know, and tour Europe for six months, so... And some of them forgot you also needed to write a comic, too. Oh, they, I don't know if they ever need that. But, I mean, that's, you know... <laughs> um, kind of neither here nor there. Um, but, you know, I can see it creating sort of all sorts of little kind of indie publishers and so forth. And, you know, and I hope for guys like Reaper, like Dwarven Forge, um, like Monty, like Robin, you know, who are able to, to really kind of make some, some serious, bring in some serious income from it, that it helps, you know, keep them doing their thing. I mean, it really kind of helps push it forward. You know, it, it's when things blow up that it's a bit more unfortunate. Okay, well, Kickstarter is a, a technology that is useful in gaming, but the products that, that are made are often, I mean, like Hillfolk, for example, are often in physical in nature. Uh, when you're talking about just digital-only products, like I said, just uh, just the PDFs, do you feel like uh, that they've hit a, a market saturation point? Do you feel like that there's still room for people to do just PDFs and not physical books? Yeah, I don't think there's a limit. I mean, I, I, there's, you know, no more than I thought there was a limit when everyone and, and their brother was publishing D20-compatible material. Um, <laughs> well, I think we're kind of hitting that same point right now with the a lot of the stuff because the signal to noise ratio is so high now just like it was in the d20 days i i I disagree with you daryl i don't think it's it's quite like it was back then i felt like there was only a few people doing really high quality stuff and most of the time it was it was not that 
But these days, I feel like most of the things I look at on the shelf, maybe I just have a really good game store, because I do live in Austin, and I do have Dragon's Lair. But maybe maybe, uh, maybe that's true. But I, I feel like when I go in there and look at the shelves, that I'm seeing, you know, mostly pretty good stuff, that I have a good chance of picking up something off the shelf and saying, you know, yes, this was a, this was a good product, not, not something that's uh, just sort of made in a garage and stapled together, you know? Well, one of the, the real downsides to, you know, the glut of D20 material was that it took up retailer shelf space and retailer dollars, right? And so if you were a, a small company like, like we were at Guardians, um, you had to, it, it was really hard to fight for airspace. Um, that sounds like the wrong word. A- anyway, you know, fight, fight to kind of get out there. Whereas if there's a thousand and one PDFs out there, well, you know, yes, it kind of gluts up the, the, the drive-through marketplace a little bit. But if you know what you're looking for, um, it doesn't take dollars away from you, if I'm making any sense there. No, you totally are. But you also, you bring up a good point that basically if you're doing PDFs in the, in the gaming market, then there really is only one place to take it, and that is drive-through RPG. Uh, before we switch topics, I wanted to point out that today's Dork Tower by John Kowalik actually discusses the exact topic we were just talking about with Kickstarters and your friendly local game store being the, one of the gatekeepers for finding good games. I think Daryl wasn't fully engaged in this podcast. <laughs> he was out browsing webcomics. No, no, for real. That's that's cool, because we love Joe and Kovalik. He was on our first episode with us, and uh, absolutely go check out uh, his comic. I think we'll make a note to we'll make a link to that in the show notes, won't we, Daryl? Yes, we will. Outstanding. So, yeah, going back to the idea of, um, you know, PDFs in, in the marketplace, there is only really one place to take it, isn't that right? I mean, it's drive-through RPG or nothing. Why, why can't you take it to Amazon and sell it as, like, a Kindle-only thing? Do people do people go to Amazon to buy RPG PDFs? Amazon doesn't do PDFs. They only do their own proprietary format, which is based off the EPUB, where you can't have a lot of art. You can't have a lot of tables. You can have a little bit. You can have like a cover art or illustrations here and there, but that's it. There's no big tables, no maps. You can't really do that on Amazon. You have to do that through, if you're wanting to do that through Amazon, it has to be a print. They don't do PDFs at all. No, no, I understand the PDF part, but I, I'm surprised that they're so limited because I know they do like children's picture books and stuff. So I would not have thought art was such an impediment. But, but, but theoretically, you could put out a you know electronic format book on Amazon. I, I would think. I think their barrier to entry is pretty low. You're, you, you, Jesse is correct. There, you absolutely could do it. I guess, and my point is this: is that people just kind of go to where they they know they can get it, and that's drive through. And 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 I want to be clear: I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just, I think, something we kind of have to acknowledge that there is kind of a monopoly when it comes to RPG PDFs and that it, and that it is drive-through RPG. Uh, P- Paizo does do downloads, but I think they only do downloads for Pathfinder and their own products. They don't do third-party stuff. I, I'm not entirely sure on that, but I, I couldn't find any when I searched earlier this afternoon. Well, I, uh, I see the... The barkeep is signaling me with his candlestick, uh, which is our secret thieves' cant for it's time to close up the tavern. So I want to thank Jesse for coming on to episode six and talking to us about technology and gaming. Thank you very much, Jesse. It has been a pleasure having you on. We'd love to bring you back sometime to uh, to talk more to us about gaming. So where can we find you on the interwebs? Uh, most often these days on Twitter at Jay Scoble. It's uh, J S C O B L E. Theoretically, I have a website, but it has been updated forever. <laughs> uh, it does say there is a City of Heroes product forthcoming. Awesome. <laughs> Paragon City Sourcebook. Just want to point that out. Wow. Oh. I'll go and try to take care of that this weekend. Uh, take removing the link, not not putting out <laughs> the products. And otherwise, uh, I continue to write the adventures of all your wizards on Wizard 101. Uh, we have a new update, Chrysalis, which is just hitting our test ser- has just hit our test servers this week, and will be on live soon. So if you are a very high level wizard, you can uh, you know continue the quest against Morganth, the Shadow Queen. And so I'll see you in the spiral. Awesome. I I do hope some of our listeners are in fact Wizard 101 players because it's a pretty cool game. And that brings us to the close of Episode 6 of The Gamer's Tavern. We would once again like to thank Jesse Scoble for joining us tonight. If you'd like to support Gamer's Tavern, please visit our website at gamerstavern.org and leave us a comment, visit our sponsors, or click on the donate button. 
You can also like us on Facebook at Gamers Tavern, follow us on Twitter at Meet in a Tavern, or rate and review us on iTunes. Your comments and reviews may be read on air. The Gamers Tavern podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 license. Join us next week as John Dunn and Russell Zimmerman join us to talk about all things Shadowrun. Until then, gamers, the tavern is closed. Hey, have you heard of The Strange? Hi, I'm Bruce Cordell. The Strange is a role-playing game that supposes that just outside of what we think of as normal Earth, there's an alien data network called The Strange. We're running a Kickstarter right now to fund The Strange. To find it, go to Google and type in The Strange Kickstarter and follow the link provided. The Strange is host to a number of hidden worlds called Recursions that player characters travel to and explore. One is a place called Arden, where magic powered by souls and other fabulous sorceries actually work. Bruce and I have designed The Strange to use the same rules engine as Numenera, a rules engine we call the Cypher System. If you know and like Numenera, you'll like The Strange. This message was brought to you by Monty Cook Games. If you want to know more about The Strange, go to kickstarter.com and search for us there.